Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Roger Jiri, and um, just to explain my position as a speaker, I'm Secretary of the History and Policy Employment and Trade Union Forum. Um, I'm also a member of the Institute of Employment Rights, so it may come as no surprise to you that I may have some differences of opinion with the previous speakers. Um, but I was also Director of Research at Unite the Union um, up until um, 2012 when I retired. Um, and had been a trade union negotiator with that union and its predecessors for the previous 30 years. So um, I have a fair amount of experience both of uh, national and enterprise bargaining, um, but also the policy side of trade union work as well uh, in connection with the Labour Party, certainly during the, the early part of this century uh, when we were engaged with the government of that time. The views I express here, I have to stress, are my own and not necessarily shared by any of the above. Um, from a trade union perspective, sectoral bargaining is nothing new, has been, has, has been illustrated. It, it goes back in time over the last century and longer. Um, and indeed, it was probably the bedrock of bargaining um, in the early part of the 20th century. Um, but has met its total demise over the last 100 years, and in particular the last 40 years, which has seen the death, uh, death knoll of, of sectoral bargaining completely. Um, in my view, there's, there's also been a, a significant collapse, as, as Joe pointed out, in the role of collective bargaining as a whole over the last 40 years. And that's been brought about in part uh, by political strategies designed to undermine the power of workers and their trade unions in particular, but also the changing structure of the labour market and the impact of globalisation. And when I look back at my experience of employment relations um, over the, uh, since the 1970s, I think of the contribution that good employment relations has brought to employers and the economy as a whole. But what are good employment relations? I'm sure there are many answers to that question, um, but I would associate good employment relations with the following. Firstly, workplace democracy, where workers have a voice and influence. Secondly, justice and fairness. That old hackneyed phrase of a fair pay for a fair day's work comes to mind. Equality, which also embraces diversity, has to be present. And trust. There has to be a relationship between the parties involved in employee relations. And I happen to believe that collective bargaining is fundamental to achieving these aims. And it is the demise and absence of collective bargaining over these years which has in part been responsible for many of the workplace ills that we currently experience. For example, a lack of equality, equality typified by the gender pay gap and the widespread discrimination which continues despite legislation which has been there for many, many years, outlawing such practices. The absence of meaningful consultation at times of change, which we have gone through so much over the last years. The low pay and insecure employment typified by zero-hour contracts and false self-employment status in the workplace. The lack of involvement of workers in key decisions affecting the future of their organisations and their employment places. So, how does sectoral bargaining help all this? And does it? Well, it's, I think, a well-established fact, Peter will no doubt disagree with me, that collective bargaining is a key instrument for addressing inequality in general and wage inequality in particular. Countries where a large proportion of workers are covered by collective agreements 
tend to have lower wage inequality. This is because we believe that collective agreements lift wage floors and compress wage distribution, as has been identified and explained in the ILO's Global Wages Report in 2015. The UK has seen a drastic fall in collective bargaining coverage, as, as Joe outlined very clearly, since the 1980s, dropping from that 80% coverage to less than 20% currently, lower than at any time since before the First World War. And that compares to a European average of around 60%, with countries in Western and Northern Europe mostly at over 80% coverage. And I accept coverage is not the same as union membership, but collective bargaining coverage is important. This whole period of demise has also coincided with the, the absence and, and repeal of the Fair Wages Resolution in 1982, the abol abolition of wages councils in, in 1993, and the Agricultural Wages Council, which held out until um, 2013. It's also seen the dismantling of national pay bargaining across the best organised sectors in the country, the public sectors. And it can be argued that trade unions are to blame for this loss of coverage. Their inability to organise workers following the destruction of traditional workplaces during the Thatcher years, their slowness to react to a changing labour market, and their failure to relate to a new generation of workers who've grown up in a world where trade unions are portrayed, albeit unfairly in my view, as unrepresentative of the population, dinosaur in nature, and contributing little or nothing to the economy and well-being of people generally. That description would, I believe, be grotesquely unfair and inaccurate. Yes, unions were slow to understand the nature of change in the workplace uh, in, in the 1980s and early 1990s and the change in the labour market. But they were battling against a legislative regime designed to undermine organising abilities and an absence of political will, even in the early part of this century, to create an environment which would allow trade unions to flourish. The breakdown of national bargaining, whether it's sectoral or company level, undermines the collective voice of the workforce. Across Europe, Britain has led in this breakdown, much to the annoyance of our fellow trade unionists in Europe. I can't recall the number of times when at various European trade union meetings, the incredulity of our counterparts to our failure to be able to exercise control when it came to wage bargaining or restructuring um, was something of great annoyance to them. The absence of sectoral bargain in any form was crucial, I believe, to this situation. So, as you've heard already, the Institute of Employment Rights has produced uh, a manifesto for collective bargaining. It's there for all to see, published and I think available to be bought for a mere £40 for those who are not members of the Institute. It, it's probably free, if, if you're a member, yeah. I mean, the fact is, the, the original version, of course, was published in 2013. Um, because this was the Reconstruction After the Crisis Manifesto for Collective Bargaining. This was produced following wide consultation within the trade union movement, not produced by um, academic and lawyers uh, in, 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 the, in, the, in the way that's been described. And indeed, this is a, a reproduction of much of what was contained in the original 2013 um, booklet. It, as I say, was brought together um, through discussions throughout the trade union movement and involved the independent think tank, the Centre for Labour and Social Studies class. It was from this analysis that the central idea of the restoration of collective bargaining was born 
with a refocusing on sector-wide bargaining. And at this stage in their thinking, the Institute recognised that to achieve such a shift would require strong government support, and that was crucial, and it was crucial to that support that there should be a government which represented workers. Sectoral bargaining would then be able to be developed on the basis of a government remit to de develop collective bargaining machinery throughout the UK in accordance with international law. And there are many, many references in this book to the ILO standards which are set for international law, uh, most of which have been breached by this government, current government and past governments. So following the election in 2015 of the Tory government and the consequent election uh, within the Labour Party of Jeremy Corbyn, the Institute made overtures to the Labour Party, raising its ideas on collective bargaining, the result of which was the publication of this manifesto for Labour law, which, after much promotion and, and dialogue within the party and within trade unions, uh, was eventually adopted in part as part of the Labour Party manifesto for the 2017 election. The actual policies that were contained in the manifesto directly were the, the establishment of a Ministry of Labour, sectoral collective bargaining, stronger access, recognition and representation rights for trade unions and their members, equal rights from day one for all workers, a living wage, repeal of the Trade Union Act 2016 and the scrapping of tribunal fees, which obviously has already happened, um, thankfully. So all that was taken from the manifesto. There is much more in the manifesto um, document here which was not specifically included in the 27 um, Labour Party manifesto. But there continues to be discussions about that. And when there is a change of government, I use the term advisedly, um, and hopefully the return of a Labour government which supports trade unions and the rights of workers not to be exploited and for our employment relations to reflect international law, then I believe that sectoral bargaining will be an important element of a strong and proportional structure to ensure that business and workers alike can enjoy the fruits of their labour. So how do we make that work? Well, we're saying that the starting point of this has to be a Ministry of Labour. And when you think about it, employee voice um, cannot be restricted simply to plant level or even corporate level. 31 million workers must surely be entitled to a voice at the highest level of government, a voice which employers have had throughout this period. And therefore, a Minister of Labour would have the responsibility for enunciating that voice and responsible for, amongst other things, the following areas of work. Firstly, to promote employment, reduce unemployment and eliminate employment insecurity. Secondly, to plan for necessary skills, qualifications and apprenticeships. Thirdly, to supervise labour standards and the scope of workers' rights and ensure adequate labour inspection. And fifthly, to promote collective bargaining, utilising the offices <coughs> of ACAS and the Central Arbitration Committee, which would work under its jurisdiction. And that promotion of collective bargaining would include developing a framework for employers and trade unions uh, in the development of employment policy and labour standards. It would establish multi-employer, sector-wide bargaining machinery to negotiate basic terms and conditions of employment and other matters of mutual concern. It would encourage the development of procedures for resolving disputes of an individual and collective nature without recourse to the courts. And time 
doesn't really permit you to go into all the details which uh, the Institute's included in its manifesto, but its intention is for every worker to be covered by a collective agreement concluded at sectoral level. And that's where we differ slightly from the, the views that, that Joe expressed in, in, from his research. But we recognise that process would take a long time. It's not going to be achieved in the first 100 days of government as, as so many governments seek to do when they come to power but that there would be a priority, and the priority would be focused on those low-paid, insecure areas of employment which need the protection uh, far more than any others. But each sector eventually would be defined by the Ministry of Labour after consultation with the interested parties, and a sectoral employment commission established to negotiate sectoral collective agreements, which would contain minimum terms and conditions of employment and a disputes mechanism. Equality and health and safety provisions would also be covered, as would part-time working, training and pensions. The terms would be legally enforceable. But the ability to negotiate above these levels and standards, of course, would remain at enterprise level, recognising that that is what many workers who are properly organised would want to do. This is about establishing a basic level of security and decent employment standards. My own experience of sectoral bargaining is a bit limited because, as Peter rightly pointed out, most sectoral bargaining disappeared long ago. Um, I have experience of the Whitley Council systems, um, which was still much the norm in, in, in health and local government sectors in the 1980s. And I also recall being part, as, as John will, of, of the CSEU and the negotiations which took place between that body and the Engineering Employers Federation, which was a type of sectoral bargaining process. Uh, my experience of CSEU meetings, I have to say, left some need for improvement of approach from both sides. Um, it was uh, quite, quite amazing. I, I always recall, because I was first based as a union official in Belfast, um, and I, I negotiated with the Harlan and Wharf um, shipbuilding, uh, uh, which was still going in those days. Um, and, and I remember going to my first <coughs> CSEU meeting, and I just couldn't believe it. You know, 40 shop stewards. Um, lined up with a team of about 12 different full-time officials at the front of them um, and matched across the other side with a team of management. I mean, they had a conference hall for these negotiations to take place and you went through this ridiculous process of, um, well, in, in the, my experience, of, of the lead official reading out uh, what he had submitted, you know, a 40-page claim document to the employer and the employer at the end with the Engineering Employers Federation then saying, thank you very much, Mr. Sanzer, we're now going away and consider our position and then come back a week later with their prepared statement and so it went on. It was quite ludicrous. There are better ways of doing things, I understand that. But nevertheless, um, it did produce at the end, I think, a, a collective coverage which ensured that there were broadly similar rates and conditions applied across that particular engineering sector. But in modern times, now, with the changes to the structure of our employment opportunities and a transfer from manufacturing to services in many instances. It's the service sector where trade union organisation is at its weakest and where low pay and insecurity dominates. And none more so than the adult social care sector, which I want to use uh, as an example of how sectoral employment uh, and sectoral bargaining can really be a benefit to all concerned, including all the interested parties, the public, um, the government, the state, the employers, and of course the workers therein. And I'm grateful to uh, Lydia Hayes, Dr Lydia Hayes, 
who's a law lecturer at Cardiff University, who's produced a study of this sector and identifies eight good reasons, as she describes them, why the sector needs sectoral collective bargaining. And I'm going to wind up by using this study as a clear exposition of the benefits arriving from such a bargaining process. Her eight reasons are set out as follows. Firstly, recognising adult social care is an industry. It has an economic value of some £20 billion. It has the largest number of women in low-paid jobs. It has a total workforce of 2 million and 20,000 employer organisations. I think that defines the sector pretty reasonably. Secondly, hands-on care work is highly skilled and increasingly complex. It's not just something you can employ anybody to do. Care work is often specialised. Care workers are asked to look after paraplegics of many people suffering from dementia, people suffering from terminal cancer, from people suffering from mental health conditions. All of these require professional workers who are well trained. Thirdly, the terms and conditions of work in this sector are totally unacceptable and the work can only be described as precarious. There is a shocking flow of uh, evidence of poor quality employment, including at its worst trafficking, certainly including low pay, predominance of zero-hour contracts, recognising that the absolute minimum is simply not enough to establish decent work. Her fourth reason, poor quality jobs means poor quality care. So there is conclusive evidence which points to a strong connection between the well-being of workers and the quality of care that people receive. So it's in the interest of the public for there to be good quality care. Individual rights are an insufficient remedy for these problems. Problems are endemic in this sector, as they are in others, and they're not individual problems. The UK enforcement system currently is totally inadequate to deal with these problems. There's a classic case which uh, uh, Lydia re reports in, in her own book, um, the Whittlestone case, which is about overnight payments and the payment for care workers who have to uh, remain on the premises, but spend much of that time asleep. And the judgment came down very clearly in favour of the applicant here to be paid um, for all the hours uh, under the minimum wage act that she was um, working and spending in the workplace, albeit some of it asleep. Um, and she was entitled to payment for those hours. And that was meant to be transferred into the rest <coughs> of the sector. Certainly, uh, as late as last year, that still hadn't happened. And so it's still, you know, an individual taking their rights through the court's procedure doesn't produce the end results that we need. We need a collective system, not an individual rights-based system. Six, care workers have been silenced by the structure of the care market. They have no voice. They're understaffed and they work under high levels of stress. But they have a total commitment to the care that they provide and so they, they don't feel able to use the um, means to express their voices uh, and have the chance to challenge the way in which their work is organised. Seventh, the government has to act to raise the quality of employment across the sector. Government should be recognising that adult care should be celebrated as a public good and political progress in social care cannot be advanced while its workers are undervalued and underpaid. Sectoral collective bargaining, we believe, Dr Lydia uh, Hayes believes, would create decent work and raise care quality. Sectoral bargaining would offer a democratic, participative, multi-party solution 
to contemporary economic and social problems. Now, I'm not suggesting for one minute um, that sexual bargaining is a panacea for good employment relations. Of course it's not. It is, however, I believe, a strategy that is worthy of further development and revival. As a means to restore the balance between labour and capital, to right the wrongs of unfairness and inequality, and to provide an economic tool which can actually aid productivity and growth. It has to be part of a wider development of labour law, including improved access, rights to strike and enforcement measures. It's not a single feature which stands alone. And that is made clear throughout the IR's recommendations. And I know now that work behind the scenes is already taking place um, within the, the Labour Party um, and with um, others to ensure that legislation is ready and able to be implemented in the early stages of a Labour government when elected to introduce a new Employment Relations Act at that time, which will incorporate the things that I've mentioned already and hopefully an awful lot more uh, as part of that. So hopefully, um, it's not a question, as Peter said, of rights without responsibilities. The, the manifesto actually does include um, balloting for, for strike action. It doesn't do away with balloting for strike action. It doesn't suggest that employer organisations have no part to pay in quite, quite the reverse. Um, employers, either individually or through their organisations, have a key role to play. They are one of the stakeholders in the whole process of sexual bargaining. It would be quite ridiculous to suggest otherwise. <coughs> so it, it's not the panacea. It's not the answer to everything. But it has, we believe, a very important role, which will increase um, collective bargaining coverage to an extent and hopefully provide the platform upon which trade unions could then build the organisation which will allow them to take their, uh, they and their members forward in a, in a better way. Thank you very much. <laughs>